0: I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum.
1: And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Mark, I am so looking forward to talking with Tim O'Brien today, who can give us a deep perspective on what Microsoft is doing in the ethical AI space, and hopefully provide some insight in his own journey in this field.
0: I am really excited to Miriam. We have, at the World Economic Forum, just published a case study on Microsoft's approach to ethical AI and how it goes about operationalizing its AI ethics principles. And I just know from that work that there is a ton there, and I'm really excited to hear from Tim about what his experience has been like, uh, and in particular, how he has moved from the world of engineering to the world of marketing, to now being a full-time AI ethicist. It's gonna be, I think, a really interesting chat. Looking
1: forward to it, let's jump in. Today we are so pleased to be joined by Tim O'Brien of Microsoft. Tim leads the ethical AI advocacy at Microsoft and is responsible for the programs to drive and promote responsible development and use of technology, inclusive public policy, and the ethics of AI. Prior to this role, Tim was the head of global communications for Microsoft, managing communications and platform strategy. And before joining Microsoft, he was an engineer, a marketer, a consultant for startups and Fortune 500 companies, and in total has over 25 years of experience in the tech industry. So we're really looking forward to learning more from you today, Tim, on your experience with AI and ethical AI in particular.
2: Great. Really excited to be here.
1: So uh, Tim, one question for you that I'm curious about, uh, uh, before we jump into the substance and content of your work, you're a successful tech executive, an engineer with an MBA and uh, a full-time job, to say the least. Why did you decide to spend this year studying law in addition to your full-time job?
2: Well, it was a, it was an on-again, off-again decision for a number of years, uh, actually. When I was in engineering school, this is in the, the late 80s, a lot of uh, engineers, aspired to go to law school and become intellectual property lawyers. And this was on the eve of the software industry taking off like a rocket, like it did in, in the 90s. Uh, I was never much interested in uh, intellectual property. I was more interested in just law broadly. Uh, but as my career evolved, entanglements between the law and technology started to escalate in a way you just where you just couldn't look away. And it probably uh, the tipping point for me was was cloud computing 10 years ago. So it was an on-again, off-again decision, and I could just never justify uh, the commitment to a JD, because I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to practice law. I don't ever want to see the inside of a courtroom. I just want to understand the domain, and uh, a JD just seemed uh, like high-cost, low-benefit relative to what I was trying to achieve in my career. And then I think combined with a bunch of other factors like declining JD enrollment, uh, I think a lot of fairly progressive law school started coming up with uh, um, degree programs for non-lawyers. And when I started getting into this work and uh, in AI, the legal entanglements even were beyond cloud computing. It's just kind of this whole impulse started all over again. So I started looking around and sure enough, uh, University of Washington was one of those schools which created a master of Jur- jurisprudence program which is essentially a super intense 1L year, which is a, it's a law degree for non-lawyers who want to know the domain but don't want to actually practice law. So uh, I waited 20 years for that program to become available, signed up immediately, and that's what I've been doing for the last two years. And I just I just love it.
0: That's fantastic. And um, just adding to your incredibly uh, diverse and rich background across all of these different domains. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll just jump into the the, the, the interview here. Uh, you have done a lot of incredible work at Microsoft and Microsoft in the time that you have been there uh, has really emerged as a leading voice and actor in the ethical AI and AI for good space. Uh, can you just walk us through kind of Microsoft's journey to get to where it is today and uh, what you see as being the key pillars of Microsoft's commitment to ethical AI?
2: Well, it really started, I think, in, in, a, in a public way in 2016, where our... At that time, new CEO Satya Nadella had penned an op-ed piece in Slate entitled um, Partnership for the Future, uh, which your listeners can look up. It it refers to the partnership between man and machine, and it it talked about our vision for AI was not to replace people, but augment what people could do. But in the closing paragraphs of that piece, he said, by the way, uh, the potential for this technology to to do harm is non-trivial. We need an empathetic framework uh, in which to think about things like fairness, um, privacy, security, accountability, and that was really the beginning of uh, a change of mindset uh, at the company around responsible innovation and in, in engineering. It was very much in its formative stage. I remember about five months after that, uh, we had our big annual developer event. Satya gets up in a uh, uh, in a big arena with five thousand attendees, and in the opening. Stanza starts talking about, uh, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, uh, which is very uncharacteristic of a tech event where it's all about, you know, let's just get straight to the demo. And I remember, uh, having a one-on-one with an industry analyst, uh, that afternoon, we just met for coffee and he said, I never thought I would see that in my career. Like I never thought I would see a tech CEO going to that place, uh, in that room, which by definition is supposed to be a really upbeat, high energy room, but it just, it, it, gives you an insight into, in this case, the senior leadership view, of Satya's view of how we needed to think about this. And shortly thereafter, we published a book, um, was authored, uh, co-authored by Brad Smith, who's our president and chief legal officer, entitled The Future Computed, which your listeners can also download for free. It's like 70 pages and 20 of the pages are high res imagery. So it's a quick, quick read, but that's where the, the principles are uh, really established around the need to be fair, accountable, transparent, secure, safe, inclusive. And this is the frame through which ever since then we've been thinking not only about design, development, deployment and use of these technologies, but also sales. Because you know, as a platform company, we need to bring our customers with us wherever we go. And uh, that's what I've been spending most of my time on since, since, that, since then really, talking to customers uh, about what we're doing to, to rethink the innovation process for lack of a a better term.
1: Well, so it's clear you're having this conversation day in, day out. It started out as very novel to be talking about ethical, responsible AI a few years ago. Uh, There's now a lot of conversations about it to say the least, and I'm sure it's filled your days and nights. Uh, So I'm curious in all those conversations, what do you think people are missing?
2: Well, I think of this whole thing um, and I'll show my, my bias toward product marketing, I guess Uh, I think of this whole thing. Like I would think of a product adoption curve, right? It starts with awareness and then progresses into interest and then, you know, eval trial, ultimately adoption. I think we're in the awareness phase. And the thing that struck me was the, uh, the newness of the topic to most of the people that I've talked to, despite the fact that this work has been going on for a very long time the epicenter of ethical AI research or ethical tech research is really uh, STS, Science and Technology Studies, <clears throat> which was created at uh, MIT in the 70s. And it's, it's grown through adjacent research domains like gender studies, African-American studies, cultural anthropology, and things like that. And for the most part, our industry kind of ignored it. Uh, not kind of really ignored it. Uh, The idea was to ship technology, commercialize it, uh, capitalize on whatever the business opportunity was, and then address the harms later. And this is what we've seen in video games, social media, harms to democracy, mobile device addictions, all of these these other things. So the the lack of awareness, I think, shouldn't have been surprising, but uh, it probably was. a little bit, but I, I've been reflecting a lot on it actually uh, recently, in, in, in just preparation for this discussion today. Because I've uh, the transition for me into this domain was not particularly seamless, just because of the, the the world that I was walking into that I
0: didn't know enough about. That I've since learned uh, quite a bit about. It's actually something that I wanted to ask you about, Tim. Is um, your you know experience moving from the engineering side through the marketing side? into the role of, you know, focusing on AI ethics. And um, obviously there was a lot of learning to do, but I'm, I'm curious also how your experience as an engineer and a technologist now informs your work on ethics in your day-to-day work that you just described.
2: I think the, you know, um, I wanna make sure I get the name right. I think it's David Epstein wrote a book called Range uh, about Our bias toward specialization, as it exists in business, sports, performing arts, everybody wants to be a specialist. And he, he was a former writer for uh, Sports Illustrated that looked at uh, people like Tiger Woods and Roger Federer to find out how good how they became as good as they they were. And Tiger Woods was famously, you know, hitting golf balls on the the Johnny Carson show or the Merv Griffin show at a very young age. But uh, Roger Federer. Uh, experimented with multiple different sports before he decided tennis was the thing that, that uh, um, he wanted to do. And so the thesis of the book is we need more Rogers, right? We need more people who understand uh, these cross-disciplinary domains. And so I think interdisciplinary uh, understanding of engineering and until recently the, the law, uh, social science, organizational dynamics has really been what I've been able to, to bring to bear here. That's not to say the specialization no longer matters. It absolutely matters. In fact, if it weren't for the great work of a lot of the specialists in this space, I wouldn't have anything to talk about. I rely heavily on their work. Uh, But but I think a lot of what I enjoy spending time on because I think it has impact is a synthesis of the law and the social science and the technology aspects of this, uh, among other things, uh, to try to drive a greater understanding and awareness with most of the people that I talk to who are getting introduced to this for the very first time.
1: Well, it would be so uh, interesting, I'm sure, to hear more about your own uh, evolution and and the challenges you mentioned that you encountered in making this transition to ethical AI work. And I'm curious if it's related to something you've said uh, publicly before, that tools, frameworks, and governments are obviously helpful, but none of it matters without changing engineering culture. I thought that was a really poignant statement uh, that I hope everyone will hear and and. Would love if you could also share with us what you meant by that and, and what that would look like.
2: Well, my my path to arriving at that was fairly circuitous. Uh, I think it was shaped by, uh, let's just say, a couple of conversations and a documentary film. Uh, so, and and for context, the the researchers that have that have formed the nucleus of this this domain and exist today. Um, are people who've committed their entire adult life uh, to this. They're mostly women. They're mostly women of color. They took massive personal and professional risks to pursue this field of study. They've endured a lot of abuse along the way. And in trying to get the industry to pay attention to the potential impact and harms from technology. So right around 2017, 2018, um, by the time I decided, you know, this is what I want to do. I feel a strong sense of purpose here. There were a lot of people who looked like me, um, you know, tech industry veterans, white guys showing up saying, Hey, how can I help? And not all of their motives were necessarily virtuous. People want to build out a personal platform for themselves. You know, kind of imagine if I was, I was really, really honest with myself, I would imagine imagine me in a in the in the kool-aid guy suit you know from the commercial kind of just busting through the brick wall saying hey i'm I'm here to help that that, that must have been how it, it looked to a group of people who 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 had suffered erasure cancellation having their ideas passed off as uh having their ideas stolen and passed off as somebody else by someone who thought You know, I can be a thought leader now that I've read, you know, Kathy O'Neill's book or Ruha Benjamin or Sophia Noble. I've got enough material here to make myself look good without any attribution. So you couldn't blame them for being suspicious or skeptical about this this big conversation was kind of all happening at once. And a lot of the actors entering the mix were for folks like me. So um, if I did anything right, I think it was having the self-awareness to to see uh, this was happening and that I needed to find my voice in a way that was uniquely additive and contributory and not just like uh, passing off other people's ideas as my own. I went to, uh, so conversation number one, I went to a a coworker, friend of mine, she works in Microsoft Research, a very well-known deep domain expert in AI ethics. And I, I said, look, you gotta, I trust her immensely, right? I said, you have to tell me, am I wasting my time here? Or can I possibly be credible doing this, given all this, giving all this other, these other dynamics? And she said, from the standpoint of lived experience, no, of course not. Um, you've never suffered sexism. You've never suffered bigotry. You're never going to, probably. Um, so don't make the mistake of trying to speak on behalf of communities you don't belong to. Um, but as far as advocacy goes and allyship, absolutely. It's great that you're doing this. We need more people like you in this fight. You just have to identify where's the line between advocacy, which you should be doing, advocating for for groups of people who are harmed by tech and not stepping over that line and just speaking on behalf of them because that's a bad thing. So that was pretty encouraging. It was a first sign that, okay, maybe I can do something that's that's additive here. Um, And then a few months later, several months later, I was uh, on a business trip out to dinner with a bunch of work uh, colleagues and friends from different companies talking about a developer conference, conference that I'd recently spoken at you know, room of a few hundred people. Demographically, it's it's how you would expect it to look. You know, a lot of white guys uh, getting introduced to this topic for the first time. And I was just reflecting on that and, you know, people reveal how little they know sometimes through the Q and A and you have to meet them where they are and answer really, really basic questions. And one of my uh, uh, friends, she turns to me and she says, you know what, anytime you want to go talk to a room like that, be my guest. I'm I just kind of had it, I'm done. Uh, you know, I I don't know that the stories that I have to tell about what it's like to being a, being a woman in tech are resonating, maybe it goes in one ear and out the other. I'm just, I'm not saying, I'm not accepting those speaker requests anymore. And then she turns to me and she says, but you, you Tim, on the other hand, you can talk to them in a way that I can't. You're one of them. You speak their language. Your background is in developer relations you know, you know how to speak tech jargon. You can talk to them about, Hey, I used to be just like you. I didn't think this was important enough to care. Um, Here's what I've learned. You can speak to them in a way that I can. not It was the first time that I'd ever heard anyone deeply immersed in this space that I knew and respected say to me, there was some contribution I could make that she couldn't. And then the third thing, the thing that really was kind of the, the, the piece of resistance was a, uh, a documentary film, you're familiar with uh, Just Mercy, correct, Brian Stevenson's book about the Equal Justice Initiative and the work that he does helping death row inmates in Alabama, it was made into the big movie. The documentary film, uh, True Justice is actually better, in my opinion, you can find it on Netflix, it's all about EJI. Brian Stevenson is featured prominently in this film and one of the storylines is uh, a case he took on involving a death row inmate named Anthony Ray Hinton. Anthony Ray Hinton was arrested uh, for a robbery homicide. He was arrested at his mother's house and the police uh, executed a search warrant on the mother's house, found his mother's gun and said, aha, here it is, we have the murder weapon. They put the ballistics quote unquote expert on the stand who said, yep, this is a ballistics match to the bullets used in the crime, which it was not. And he was convicted and sent to, uh, to, to death row. Now for, for context and Brian Stevenson gets involved in the case and says, okay, we're gonna get another uh, ballistics expert to provide rebuttal testimony that it's not a ballistics match and, you'll, and that should be enough to get you a new trial. And you have to understand, Anthony Ray Hinton was convicted by a justice system that included a white judge, white prosecutor, white district attorney, all white jury, probably the local reporters writing about how the police caught the killer. Uh, the reporters are probably white. And he says to Brian Stevenson, Fine, if you wanna get a rebuttal um, ballistics expert, just make sure it's a white guy. You have to get a white guy. And the quote that he, in the film, that I just still hangs in the air for me today, he said, they'll only listen to their own kind. And I, I paused the movie, my wife said, what are you doing? Why are you pausing the movie? I said, grab a pen, I need to write that down. And that was the first time it kind of occurred to me, knowing what we know about the tech community writ large um, that demographically, it's, it's very white, it's very male, it's very um, heterosexual, cisgendered, you know, and there's some subset within that that says, yeah, it's time for change. You know, what can we do to make this a better thing? There's another side of the bell curve that says, you know, hey, this is all rubbish. I want nothing to do with this. And I don't think you're ever going to win those people over. But in the middle of the bell curve, there's a set of people who may be open to this and we have to, to have to win them. But within that, there's folks who, you um, as Anthony Ray Hinton said, they may only listen to their own kind. It doesn't mean people who belong to marginalized communities or vulnerable communities shouldn't be telling their stories of bigotry and prejudice because I think those things are super impactful. Um, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an additive piece to this uh, in, in which can help get that to break through. So that's, that's really what crystallized all of this for me. It didn't happen overnight. It took
0: a couple of years actually for me to get that level of clarity. That's it's an incredibly rich story and 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 a lot to to unpick there. I think this theme of meeting people where they are um, in order to help get them, uh, you know, where we want them to be and where we want the space to be is um, is is important and it's something that uh, has come up in a number of our conversations. Just to expand that a little bit um, more broadly, you know, one thing that's interesting about your work and Microsoft's work is that you do this work. All over the world, uh, all around the globe, um, uh, and there are uh, obviously you know big differences in terms of the cultural norms and uh, even the conceptions of ethics uh, in a lot of the different regions where you work. So I'm just curious, kind of you know how you navigate those differences across cultures and societies. Um, how do you meet the different places where you work, where they are, while also holding true to to Microsoft's values and its 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 kind of north star.
2: I rely very heavily on uh, our local teams. Microsoft has a business presence in somewhere on the order of 190, 195 countries around the world. So there's, I, have, I have a very rich set of resources I can call upon in the form of coworkers and our global subsidiaries to say, what do I need to know about these touchy subjects? On the one hand, some of them are... Um, similar, right? We have, we, have, we have social justice issues here in the United States revol- revolving around, for example, uh, treatment of people of color by law enforcement. Um, and I, one of the last business trips I did before the pandemic closed down travels, I went to speak in Sao Paulo, Brazil, I think it was in December of 2019. And it uh, and, uh, turns out there's a lot of similar issues in Brazil. Uh, law enforcement, uh, the attitudes and actions of law enforcement in Brazil towards communities of color in in Brazil. And uh, I was struck by the parallels because everything that I would have said in an interview with U.S. media, uh, I basically used kind of the same narrative and, and key points that I wanted to make with Brazilian media and it all resonated. And in fact, one of the reporters that I'd spoken to was a was a person of color himself. And after the interview, he said he said, "Man, you know, let me tell you how bad it is here." And we had a really uh, kind of interesting off the books conversation about that. So there there are more similarities I think uh, than I than I'd realized. In other parts of the world, uh, you have to think about what are the what are the cultural norms that. You could inadvertently press upon in a, in a way that that puts either me personally or the company in an awkward position, because you know here in the United States, if we have a, a disagreement with our own government, you know we we take the government on. I think during the Obama administration, we sued the U.S. government four times over privacy-related things, but when you're operating in a foreign subsidiary you're subject to the laws of the, uh, the local laws in which you operate. And that's, that's been our public policy for as long as, as I can remember. So being respectful of the rule of law in the company in which the country in which we operate uh, is important, but it doesn't mean there's not a way to broach um, some of these topics. One of the earlier pieces of work that I did, at least in this role, involved cross-cultural ethics. And a lot of the, the way we think about ethics in North America and Western Europe are very different than places like China Japan, Korea, Vietnam, these are cultures based on Confucianism. Mm-hmm. So just understanding some of these cultural underpinnings that go below you know the rule of law or the government's policy or any of those sorts of things is is in, incredibly important. When you're in a place where um, social order is the is the most important thing, and you're speaking like an American, you know, yammering on about the Constitution and individualism, it's you're just going to talk right over the heads of of that audience. So you really need to know, uh, who you're talking, who you're talking to, from a, the standpoint of cross-cultural dynamics.
1: Well, and I think that blends so nicely with your point, and, and thank you for sharing your personal journey into this work, uh, where there really is a role for everybody, and it's not just uh, a good thing to do, it's a mandate. We need to have different voices. Uh, we need white dudes to be caring about this uh, in tech company and as consumers and elsewhere. We need uh, cross-cultural uh, awareness so that we can build AI that is inclusive and supportive of different norms. Uh, I'm curious if you have experiences within your own work of changes you've made internally uh, that have been in line with these values of, of adopting more inclusivity and, and ensuring that the AI that you're supporting is more ethical and responsible.
2: Yeah, I mean, just You know, you mentioned uh, earlier about the change, the required change in culture. The nucleus of that is a change of mindset. And it doesn't matter how many checklists you have or how many tools you have to employ or how many frameworks you have at your disposal to crystallize your thinking about some of these issues. If you're not in a mindset of saying, I'm open to thinking differently about this. I have a much broader view uh, of the things that I had before, um, then you, you can't help but to think differently about them. The thing that I came to realize is that uh, when it comes to harms from technology or any, anything really that involves uh, sexism, prejudice, bigotry, I have absolutely no proximity to any of those harms. You know, I wake up every day with the option of looking the other way and just ignoring it and say, you know, this is somebody else's problem. It's not my fight to fight. And I'm embarrassed to say, I've spent probably most of my uh, life exercising that option, not for lack of empathy or um, animus, just just complete utter lack of awareness, had no idea what was going on. I wasn't reading the right books. I wasn't talking to the right people, wasn't following the right folks on on Twitter. So now that I've kind of rectified that, uh, then what, what what can you do about it? But once once you have that, I think realization, you can never go back. I mean, I could there's no scenario in which I can wake up and say, hey, today I just don't feel like dealing with this. I think I'm gonna exercise my option to to not not care and you know go, you know, to my tennis lesson or whatever. Once, once you've gone to that place, you just you can't you can't go back. And so if you can, if you can catalyze that change in mindset, if you can make that shift. Again, like you said, meeting someone where they are, no matter where they are, uh, finding out what what is the thing that makes them tick. You know, For some companies, it's a realization that we need to live up to our aspirations of corporate and social responsibility. For other corporations, they're worried about reputational harm to the brand, liability exposure. I mean, everybody's got some sort of thing that gets them to the table to have the discussion. Fine, whatever it is. Um, if you're open to, to listening, that's, you've, you've, you're, that's half the battle. You've, 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 you've kind of got their attention now. So I think that that change in mindset, once you've made that switch, it affects everything. It affects how I talk. It affects how I talk to uh, other people. It affects my writing. It affects how I interact with my coworkers. It, it, uh, it affects how I speak my opinion to people that I work for in my company. Um, it affects how I bring
0: myself to this this discussion today. It
2: just changes everything.
0: Absolutely, I think that's um, uh, something that's very relatable for myself and Miriam, who I think have gone through uh, a similar kind of uh, process. And 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 yeah, once the once the, the switch is flipped, it's it's, uh, it's it's there forever, and and that's a good thing. It actually leads me to a, a question. One thing that I've seen. Recently, which has been very heartening is a lot of young people who are uh, already um, having that switch flipped and who are um, really coming into the the AI world with their eyes wide open about um, the potential harms and also the opportunities um, and the ethical issues that need to be uh, addressed to to really bring this positive AI future that we want to see. Uh, you've been on the engineering side, on the marketing side, on the product side, and now on the ethics side. I'm curious what advice you would give to any of our listeners who are earlier in their career and thinking about how they can make the most impact in the ethical AI space.
2: Well, it's such a great question because the gears are turning in my head now about the role of what I think is a much more uh, socially enlightened generation of talent entering the workforce. So, you know, before I give any advice to people who are early in career, um, they've already got a lot of, I think, built in social awareness, which is, which is a good thing. It's going to change the way corporations, uh, engineering groups, technology companies think about talent acquisition and retention, because if you're trying to, advocate for these changes to the most skeptical, cranky, you know, engineering guy you've ever met who thinks this is just a lot of woke, you know, nonsense. You know, there's a there's a, there's a a way of approaching that that just says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I'll, I'll, I'll concede all of the, we'll agree to disagree on all that, but you can just, I'm not gonna debate that. What is it that keeps that engineering person awake at night? You know, I've got this engineering schedule I can't make. Uh, how many features am I gonna have to cut to make this date? There's no way I can triage all these bugs. Um, I've got all these headcount and the uh, budget pressures. And so one of the things that uh, business people in general but engineering leaders are, are particularly under a lot of pressure uh, on is talent uh, acquisition and retention. There's just the battle for talent in tech is well-documented, it's written about all the time. And so you know, explaining to them that you have a a fairly socially enlightened generation of computer scientists and engineers entering the workforce who you think you're going to interview for a job, but they're going to interview you and you just don't know it yet. And they're going to make decisions about whether or not they want to come work for you based on whether or not you're living up to your mission and values as a company. So like this train is coming. If you want to acquire this talent and you want to retain this talent, and you continue to exercise the option of looking the other way, um, your competitors, are, they're going to win those people and you're going to lose. You're going to lose in the market. Your product is not going to uh, succeed. Uh, I mean, you can really kind of go down the path of, you don't want to talk about social justice. Fine, we won't talk about that. Let's talk about what constitutes business success, market share, revenue, profit. You're going to lose on all those things. So the, the world is, is changing in ways that I'm not sure is apparent to a lot of the engineering leaders on the outside. I know that over 100 universities here in the United States alone, ethics uh, coursework is mandatory for a computer science degree. That's only going to grow. Whether or not that's the solution, I, I, I don't know, but it's certainly progress. So that change is happening. What I would say to uh, people earlier in career is control what you can control. I, I talk to so many young people who ask questions or, or share their own thoughts about their five-year plan. And 80% of the five-year plan depends on the ball bouncing a certain way uh, in ways they cannot control. And I just tell them like, look, you know, hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a career strategy. So control the things you can control. Continuous learning, hunger for knowledge acquisition, uh, openness to learning. You're gonna have good bosses. You're gonna have bad bosses. You can actually learn more from the bad bosses about how to be a good boss later when you become the boss. Uh, so just you know, invest in learning, education, continuous knowledge acquisition, because all the things you think that are going to shape your career in the next uh, five to ten years are probably not going to happen. It's going to be a whole set of other crazy things that uh, we haven't predicted.
1: Well, and Tim, that seems like good advice as well for how to ensure we have responsible, ethical AI if we understand that hope is not a solution. Uh, We can't just hope it turns out okay and and doesn't hurt anyone. Um, And we need to keep learning. Uh, We're so grateful to be able to hear some of your thoughts on what you're doing to continue teaching us and continue to ensure that uh, the AI products we're using are safe, are responsible, are inclusive. And I'm so sorry uh, to have to close out this conversation because I wanna hear more of your thoughts and and more about the work you're doing. Uh, But before we let you go, one question we ask ask each of our guests is uh, a quick way to think about what you're hopeful, fearful, and looking forward to. So we ask about your rose, your thorn, and your bud in AI.
2: So, I mean, the, the fact that this conversation happening is uh, is huge progress. Because um, again, the research has been going on for a very, very long time. It just, no one's been paying attention to it. So now that the attention is is there, um, that's a good thing. Um, I, I do worry a little bit about it being compartmentalized as a specialty. Um, a colleague of mine shared, uh, an article that was written, I think, by a former Google engineer and published in the Boston Globe a couple of years ago about the view of engineering ethics in previous case studies involving things like buildings falling over, bridge collapses, aviation disasters. And every one of those cases, the engineers or the designers, the creators involved said, you know, oh, we have an ethical specialist. It's that person over there. My job is just to design to this, this thing. Um, I do worry about that. Uh, I do think that um, it needs to be everybody's job. Hence, the change in culture, the change in mindset. Everyone has to uh, uh, to think about this. And um, I guess the, the last piece would be the one that we, we we just talked about. There's a generational shift. We're in a social moment as a as a society, as a country, at least, um, maybe in the world. And I think we can't underestimate the impact of that on this narrow domain that we're talking about today. Because, you know, ultimately. The people that uh, made the decisions that led to the situation we have today are ultimately going to retire and disappear. And you're going to have a, a, a new generation of leaders entering the workforce with a completely different mindset about everything from um, uh, impact of the things we build on people in society to uh, sustainability, uh, to, to privacy in a world that's awash in data and a whole slew of other uh, uh, things that I know that you talk talking right about quite a bit. So uh, I, I am hopeful for that, that generational shift uh, really affecting this in a positive way.
1: Well, thank you, Tim, for giving us so much to be hopeful about and so much to think about today. It's really a pleasure to talk to you and um, I hope we'll get to continue the conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. Take care, Tim. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, that was really a a rich conversation, I thought, Miriam. Um, Tim has had an extraordinary experience professionally, but also personally in terms of his evolution and his transition from a technologist to a technology ethicist. Uh, Curious what you thought and anything that jumped out in particular.
1: I'm really struck by his approach of humility. He seems deeply uh, aware of how he fits into his space, his where he lacks, uh, where he needs to be inclusive of others. And I would imagine that that speaks to how he thinks about responsible and ethical AI in understanding shortcomings, in understanding where you need to be inclusive and, and solicit the feedback of others with other experiences. Uh, but I'm also really struck by the, uh, Other piece of that, the flip side, which is that everyone has a role to play in building responsible ethical AI. I think he's found the place for himself um, and and, uh, certainly has pointed out where others need to be participating in sharing their own experience, their cultural perspective, their ethnic perspective, all the different geographical age come to play uh, so that we all have a role to play in making sure that AI best serves all of us. What about you, Mark?
0: I I agree. I was really impressed by uh, Jim's humility and his self-awareness of his own position within the AI ethics conversation. And he's obviously just given a lot of thought to what he can most usefully do. One of the things that jumped out is that he feels he can be a sort of a diplomat or an emissary who can meet the engineers where they are, uh, which is often not where probably their companies or the broader society would like them to be uh in terms of awareness of and and proactively working towards uh you know addressing ethical issues in technology he's able to meet them where they are to speak their language and to to help bring them along with him and with the company i thought that was really impressive and 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 just very important i also thought that his advice uh and his his thoughts on the um future of the AI and tech workforce were really interesting. Uh, he obviously uh, thinks and, and, and makes a persuasive argument that uh, younger people are coming into the workforce with much more attentiveness to these kinds of issues. And um, I just thought it was interesting to hear him talk through what that means for companies and how they really need to adapt uh, if they want to continue to recruit and retain the top talent out there.
1: Certainly an optimistic perspective, something we have to look forward to and so much to consider. He's obviously given great thought to all the aspects of uh, ethical AI and all the questions that we posed today. Uh, Just in all, a great conversation and I can't wait for our next episode.
0: I'm looking forward to it. Until then, take care Miriam.
1: Take care, Mark.
0: You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI, and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback, and if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.